was he the Messiah or was he just a naughty boy? Well, no one was quite sure about Brian, but a couple of billion Christians reckon they know a bit about Jesus Christ. But according to historian John Dixon, believers and skeptics alike have hardly had time to process one controversial theory before the next one hits the market. So he too has weighed into the debate with a new book, Jesus, A Short Life. John Dixon, nice to have you in the studio. Great to be here. Let's establish from the outset your intention with the book. I understand it was to establish what's historically known about his life, not to to take it from what I understand is called the Christian apologetic view. There are three kinds of books about Jesus. On the one hand, you have books that are just trying to disprove everything. I guess you could put Richard Dawkins into that category. At the other, you've got Christian apologetics that's trying to prove everything in the Bible. And then you've got this sort of rarefied academic stuff that doesn't care, (laughs) (laughs) but is still studying Jesus just as they study Alexander the Great or Tacitus or anyone else from the ancient past. Um, But there's a book, there needs to be a book that kind of is popular, but tries to draw down on the more disinterested scholarly material on Jesus, which is a vast industry. Yeah. Is it hard for you, though? You're the director of the Centre for Public Christianity. How do you define the role of that organisation? Well, that organisation is an independent of any church. It's uh, trying to promote the public understanding of the Christian faith without being a Bible bash. Okay. It's trying to do it in an intelligent way. My, the other part of my life is as Senior Research Fellow in the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie. Yeah. And it's really in that capacity that I teach on this subject and also try to write a book that's sensible without being pushy. What's very interesting about this is is that I guess you have to separate what is known from what you believe. Absolutely. So this book, Jesus, A Short Life, uh, doesn't contain everything a Christian believes. And if I'm going to lose any friends, it's really Christians um, because they're going to look at it and go, where's all the arguments that Jesus is God? You know? yeah. um, but they're not going to find that because when you put on your historical cap and you say to readers, I'm really just going to talk about what mainstream historians think is real in the life of Jesus, I can only talk about what the evidence says and the rest people have to take by faith. Okay. I'm very comfortable with that. Yeah, sure. And I wonder if you've got a question for John Dixon too uh, while we're having a chat. Give us a hoy, one three hundred triple two seven twenty. So what do we know historically? Well, let's start with the obvious thing. Do we know he exists? Existed? Well, absolutely. I I mean, I know someone like uh, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion says that a serious historical case can be made that Jesus never lived at all. It sounds dramatic, and he even gives us the name of a scholar, G.A. Wells of London University. What he doesn't tell us is that George Wells is professor of German language, you know, not a historian of any kind. Now, I know people who speak German generally are clever, but (laughs) that doesn't make you an expert on all things. Uh, So uh, when you turn to actual professional historians, I don't mean theologians in seminaries, I mean historians in classics departments and ancient history departments, they've got no doubts whatsoever this figure lived. We know from both Christian sources of the first century, but also non-Christians who weren't interested in his claims to be Messiah, but thought he was a very interesting character and started a movement that they generally disliked. So he got mentioned as someone who copped it in the neck Mm. through Pontius Pilate. So we know he existed. But more than that, most historians would sign off on some core facts. Uh, He came from Galilee. He was a famous teacher. People thought he could heal. Now, I must say, uh, historians can't judge whether he actually did miraculous healings. Mm. That's philosophy and theology. That's not my area. But we do know he had a reputation as a healer. We know he was executed under Pontius Pilate. And we know that very soon after the execution, there were lots of people running around saying they'd seen him. Mm. Okay. (laughs) Now, that's good. We'll get to some of these points as we go along. You quote 
um, fellow named Professor Ed Sanders at Duke University saying, there are no substantial doubts about the general course of his life, when and where he lived, when and where he died, and the sort of things that he did during his public activity. And yet you say there are lots of scholars who just reckon that everything's up for grabs. And one of them you refer to again and again is Bishop John Shelby Spong, who was on this program last year wondering if even the names Mary and Joseph were some kind of, you know, latter construct. Yeah, um, it's an interesting argument. The first thing to say about John Spong is, I mean, I love his writings. Mm. He, he's very articulate and a great operator, um, but he's a theologian. That's that's the thing. He, and so when he ventures into history, he tends to bring those sort of mythopoetic sentiments of the theologian into history, and it doesn't really work. Most historians scratch their head at the writings of uh, of Spong and say, well, actually, the the historical evidence really points very strongly to the not only the existence of Mary and Joseph. Um, I mean, Spong's argument for Mary being a fiction, a fictional name, is that there were lots of Marys in the Old Testament, and so maybe this is just a way of saying uh, that you know this is the fulfilment of the Old Testament. Problem is, we know that Mary was the name of one fifth of all Jewish women in the first century. First century. Yeah. So were they all just you know fictional? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, um, you say that the headlines almost always get it wrong. In what way? Apart from ABC headlines, of course. You don't even have to say that. <laughs> uh, but in, in, in what way? Well, because look, we, we do, uh, and, and you comment in your book about, um, you know, every couple of years there's a, a new documentary on the Discovery Channel, things mm. we've just found. Mm. Well, the old, old story, the traditional story that Christians have been telling for a long time is boring at one level. I mean, most people on the street sort of have a vague hunch about Jesus and he did X, Y, Z and he died and so on. So we need something new to be fresh. I mean, mm. you, you know how news works. Sure. And so a headline, you know, Jesus married Mary Magdalene is excellent if there were any evidence. Yeah. I mean, you've got to drill down and you actually find that, you know, it's some sort of tangential scholar who's arguing this. Um, or we've discovered Jesus' tomb. That'd be great fun. But no serious scholar actually thinks we have. Yeah. So uh, the headline grab, I, I think, is a lust for new. Yeah. And also, uh, I think the Jesus figure creates controversy. As soon as you talk about the name Jesus, it, 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 you know, some people who are hyper-skeptical are sort of outraged. Those who are, you know, love him yeah. are sort of, you know, enamored. And, yeah, and, and yeah, so yeah. there are a lot of, lots of emotions surrounding this figure. Okay. We'll go to some calls in a moment. My guest this morning is John Dixon, the author of Jesus, A Short Life. And we'll get to Lee in just a sec. What I found very interesting, and, and keeping, I, can't, I do come from a fairly low base of knowledge of these matters, I have to tell you, you say in the book that when we speculate about who Jesus was and what he did, we need to keep in mind that he was, quote, a very minor figure, and that the movement he created, the kingdom of God, amounted to just a few hundred people in a Palestine where there were two million people. Um, I found that very interesting, and then interesting too that there were far more revered religious figures at the time. So my question to you is this, what did Jesus have that the likes of Honey? Is it Honey? Yep, Honey the Circle Drawer. Honey the Circle Drawer didn't. Well, Honey the Circle Drawer is a, a fun character. He, there was a drought in Palestine and he wanted it to rain. So he drew a circle around himself and said, God, I'm not getting out of the circle until it rains. And apparently rained, according to two sources. Made him very popular. Yeah, absolutely. So he was a very famous guy. Um, but he was also a rabbi. And the official rabbis in this early period were revered. Absolutely revered. Um, and so Jesus comes along as a kind of, kind of a character outside of the norm, outside of traditional circles of power. 
and um, was really a minor figure. In fact, uh, one of the most important historical Jesus books of the last 20 years is a three-volume thing called A Marginal Jew. Mm. And he was marginal. We suspect that the founder of the world's largest religion had to be you know, intensely popular in his day, but he probably wasn't. What really got things going for the first Christians was that the first Christians thought he'd got up again after crucifixion. Mm. And that was such a bizarre claim that it caused an, an incredible stir. So after his death and the claimed resurrection, he became intensely popular. In his day, he was one of uh, numerous wandering sort of charismatic teachers. Lee, good morning to you. Yes, good morning. What's your question to John? My question is, uh, it's kind of, it's about the sort of the Gospels of Judas and Phil. There seems to be a few of them kind of floating around. And I'm just wondering, you know, they kind of make really radically different claims to what you sort of find in the Bible, you know, like Judas was a good guy and Jesus kind of did all this other stuff. And I'm just wondering what your take on it is. Um, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Lee. It's a good question. It's one I get all the time, especially after the Da Vinci Code said that there are all these Gospels that the church has hidden away. Um, yeah, I mean, that's fine. We do know there are lots of Gospels, but they don't come from the first century. What seems to have happened is the four Gospels that we generally know of, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, inspired a Gospel writing movement. As Christianity became popular, people yeah. thought, ooh, I want to write a Gospel too. Uh, and so they you know, picked names that hadn't been chosen yet, like Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Thomas, and yeah. so on. But we know these are written in the second century. They don't come from the period of the New Testament Gospels. And some parts of the church liked it. And so these extra Gospels teach us that there was some variation in early mm -hmm. Christianity. But historians don't really use the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip as core sources because they were written too late. Yes. We, we don't really like sources that are more than about 80 years after the death of the figure. That starts to push our uh, believability. Mm. So we need sources that were within about 80 years. And the New Testament Gospels are the only ones that fit into that category. Mike, hello. Yeah, good morning, uh, Jeff and your um, guest. John. John. Um, I'm one of those people that are labelled atheist in rather large letters across the forehead. Um, I... <laughs> I couldn't resist ringing up when your when John mentioned something about religion and intelligence at the start of this whole uh, conversation. Um, from what I can see of of religion and belief, whichever one you want to look at, apart from the fact that we still have this uh, Jew Arab Saracen thing going on from from whenever, uh, it seems to me that every time some scientist you know, those terrible people that religious believers don't want to know exist. As soon as a scientist comes up with some definition of whether it's a theory of evolution or whatever else, the, the church finds a way to accommodate it still into their beliefs, even though if you read the scriptures uh, in the early part, it, it's a very strict line that was taken in most religions, Christianity as a base. And yet, as soon as someone comes up with something that the churches cannot deny, um, they change tack and they say, oh, yeah, well, that may be the case, but, uh, for instance, the hidden scriptures or the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever else. Uh, um, would your book encase uh, most of that, or do you yourself, I would love to know, have an actual doubt in the back of your mind as to the total thing. How, how do you define, how do you look at evolution and 
still consider that the Bible uh, tells us the right story. Well, Mike, I'll leave I, you with I, that. Yeah, I know you will, Mike, because that's about as all-encompassing a question as you can find. John, do with it what you will. Well, let me take all 17 questions in order. <laughs> um, the first point about the church changing its mind when science discovers something is a common argument. I know Dawkins makes it all the time. Problem is... Uh, that actually what happens is uh, the church tends to find other interpretations that have been part of their history rather than just invent a new one. So in the case of evolution and and the age of the earth and those kinds of things, um, Dawkins thinks that anyone who thinks... uh, that Genesis might be metaphorical. is not being true to the Bible. They should just, you know, they really should believe it all literally um, because that creates a nice contest between mm-hmm. Christians and scientists. But the problem is there's been a long tradition in the church of not reading it literally. Genesis 1, for example. So even in the first century, Philo, the Jewish philosopher, didn't read Genesis 1 literally. Augustine, one of the greatest theologians of Christian history in the 4th and 5th century, didn't read Genesis 1 literally. So it's got nothing to do with science, actually. That's the first thing I'd say. Um, I think uh, one of the other 17 questions um, had to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, there's an awful lot in the book about the Dead Sea Scrolls because they're wonderful in helping us know more about first century Judaism. The Dead Mm. Sea Scrolls were generally written before Jesus, so there's no reference to Jesus in them, but they do tell us a lot about Palestinian Judaism that's opened up new ways of understanding Jesus. So when Jesus is critiquing certain forms of Judaism in his period, we now know that the Essenes who produced the Dead Sea Scrolls held some of those beliefs Jesus is criticizing. Mm. So it helps us uh, place him in his first century Palestinian context. Well done. I know there's 15 questions that still remain slightly unanswered, but I don't think we've got time. Plenty of people want to talk to you. But Jesus is invariably portrayed as gentle and loving, a befriender of the great unwashed and unloved and non-believers, and as you say, the almost an archetypal feminist. Do we know something beyond this kind of, I guess we could call it an airbrushed assessment these days? One of the firmest con- consensuses in scholarship today is that Jesus was not only a friend of sinners. I mean, that's true. He, he was constantly scandalizing people by sitting down and having meals with those classed sinners. This was religiously illegal, but Jesus did it. However, uh, Jesus also preached judgment. And I know that's not very friendly, and I, I sort of wince every time I talk about it, but as an historian, I, I can't say anything other than there are too many sources that refer to Jesus preaching judgment. He thought there was something deeply wrong with humanity, and he'd come to warn them, but also to befriend them in advance of the judgment. So historically, that's the way we need to uh, look at it. But at the same time, the church's emphasis on judgment that uses judgment as a means of control Um, The church has sometimes Mm. been accused of that. And I I wouldn't want to defend the church for a second. I would say that Jesus never seemed to use judgment as a form of control. He said that there were things profoundly wrong in society, that judgment was coming. But he actually sat down with those first in line for judgment and uh, had meals with them. So something unusual is going there. Um, There's a tension in his ministry. Let's talk briefly about the notions of miracles and healing the sick and giving sight to the blind. How do historians deal with them? Do they accept them as possible occurrences or do they do they call them fairy tales? Well, actually, I'm giving a lecture tonight at the University of Western Australia for the classics department on this exact question. Uh, it's open to the public, so listeners may want to come. Mm. Um, it's at 6 p.m. tonight in the Wolno Lecture Theatre, to offer a plug. It's healers in the time of Jesus. And my basic argument is, and most historians won't have a problem with this, is Historians can't, as historians, prove or disprove that Jesus actually did miracles. I mean, 
what kind of evidence could possibly prove that? All we can demonstrate is that a person had a reputation as a healer. In other words, did things which people interpreted as miracles. Whether or not he did miracles is a philosophical uh, judgment. If you believe the laws of nature are the only things operating in the world, of course miracles can't happen. Mm. If you believe the laws of nature are not the only things happening in the world, then at least you're theoretically open to the possibility. Historians deal with much simpler questions. How early are the sources referring to Jesus' miracles? How widespread are the sources that haven't just been copied from one another? And when we look at those two questions, there is no doubt in the vast majority of historians' minds, Jesus did things which, which people in his day thought were miracles. Yeah. His reputation as a healer is the most securely attested in all of antiquity. And yet, down the centuries, I keep I imagining this this uh, game of Chinese whispers where uh, it changes or the degree of the healing or the degree of the miracle becomes larger, larger, larger. Is that what happens? Yeah, what's really interesting when you compare 2nd century Christian literature with 1st century Christian literature, 2nd century Christian literature is far more exciting because they have, you know, like the teenage Jesus, uh, you know, jumping over small buildings and, you know, yeah, um, yeah. And, and even as a kid doing miraculous things. But, but the first century literature, the Gospels are very mundane. They just say, you know, a blind man came to Jesus and he said, be healed. And he, and he, was, all, he was all better. Yeah. So this so kind of this colored very, in the picture a little bit. Yeah. Well, as time goes on, mm. the, the picture was colored. But in the earliest sources we have, very mundane, very straightforward reports. This is very interesting for us. John, hello. Oh, yeah, good day. Um, I, I've got a question. I think I, I must have read it somewhere, but I can't remember where or when, uh, that the only people that could anoint a body after death was a member of the family. And Mary was given permission to anoint Jesus' body. So does this lean towards Jesus being mar married to Mary? Not really. Um, I would I would love it to be the case that Jesus had a girlfriend uh, or uh, or a wife. I, I see no problem historically with that. It's just that there's no evidence. No uh, close uh, family and friends could anoint a loved one. Maurice, hello. Morris. Morris. Hello, Morris. Oh, sorry. I'm uh, just halfway from me being on toast. Um, well, Morris, please don't eat and call at the same time. No, no. My mother used to whip me for that. Now, uh, I know you're a deeply spiritual man. What's your question for John? Uh, yeah, no, uh, John, it's just an observation that uh, I'm not a, a practicing Christian or anything like that, but I think he was a pretty good bloke, and, uh, you know, he said some good things, and if uh, some of these uh, silver-tailed uh, rich people could uh, read a bit about uh, the Sermon on the Mount or uh, Camels and Eyes of Needles... It might make them sit up and take notice and try and live a little bit nicer. You know what I mean? Morris, thank you. Um, Elizabeth, to you. Hello. Good morning. I don't want to ask a question. I'd just like to make a statement. I don't know much about the real Jesus apart from what I've read in the scriptures, but I know a great deal about the spirit of Jesus and the love that comes to, to humble people who open themselves to the possibility that Jesus did live and and receive the grace of God, the warmth of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way I can put it. I'm now 81, and at 32, I was crying out for help to God. You know, I'd heard about God and, and Jesus as a schoolgirl, school and I had no one else to, to help me at this stage. I had a, a, 
I returned soldier as a husband who was developing to be an alcoholic, and I had two young children who hadn't yet started school, mm. and I was crying out for help uh, to, in prayer. In prayer, I was yes. kneeling at the side of the bed, and something touched me on my right shoulder with a warmth that I'd never experienced before. And I was a bit scared. I didn't know what this was. And the same thing happened the following night. I was crying out for help again. And the same thing, warmth touching my left shoulder. And I was really scared, you know. I didn't know what was happening. But I took the time out to to, uh, approach an Anglican minister in the parish of Scarborough at the time. And um, I was just told to join the church, which I did. But in hindsight... I, I believe that at that stage I was given the courage to look for employment. I found employment before my son, our, our son started school. And I've been searching for more of this, the warmth of God by the power of the Holy Spirit ever since. Elizabeth, I very much appreciate your call. Thank you. Um, John, What's interesting is uh, there are missing years for a man who lived for just 33. There are a lot of blanks, and I can see it now. Jesus, the missing years, coming soon on the Discovery Channel. Yet you say it's very, very rare and inherently unlikely that anything new and significant will emerge from a TV documentary or a popular-level book. You also say your own included. Why is that? And, And doesn't that sort of add to the suspicion that we know what we know? and that we're not going to find a document or a shroud or a fragment of DNA to open up new pathways? Well, occasionally we have little discoveries. So just uh, recently, a couple of years ago, we discovered a pool in the middle of Jerusalem, which is actually mentioned in John's Gospel. Yeah. So that, that was great fun, and I've visited it twice now. So there are little things like that that you, you know, we hope do come up. But, but dramatic things, it's just unlikely. It's certainly unlikely that you'll ever find a dramatic thing in a documentary. It really will go through scholarship first, and, and then a couple of years later it'll pop out into the popular world. Yeah, so you'll get a television in, a, a interviewer saying to the academic who's worked on it for the tw- last 20 years, so what you're saying, in a nutshell, is so your television will always do that great oversimplification. It will. And on the missing years of Jesus, there's just no data. Second century Christians tried to fill in the blanks. How many years are we talking about, do you think? Well, we know nothing. I mean, the Gospels tell us a little about Jesus as an infant. There's one story about him as a 12-year-old being rather precocious. Uh, and then it just picks up when he's uh, in the year uh, um, 28, when he's 30-odd. Uh, So there's a lot of years missing, right? Um, I think it actually uh, points to how responsible the gospel writers were. They didn't have information about the teenage Jesus, so they left it blank. Mm. That frustrated later Christians who invented stories of the whole story. you know, superhero Jesus as a 15-year-old. Um, but no historian takes that seriously. We're much more comfortable comfortable with the pedestrian, safe reporting that we have in the Gospels. Let's have Jack as our last caller. Hi, Jack. Hi, uh, Jeff and John. Um, about a year ago, see on Channel 2, that um, they found, actually found Jesus's coffin, or sarcophagus, whatever they called it, and uh, son of Mary and Joseph and married to Magdalene with three boys. That was on Channel 2. I'm sure. Well, I'm not going to take responsibility for that, John. It wasn't on Channel 2. It was on the Discovery Channel. Was it? Uh, yeah, the, the family tomb of Jesus. Uh, basically, no serious scholar takes that stuff seriously. There were 30 people <laughs> in this tomb uh, mm. that, they're, that they're referring to. Um, and there's no way Jesus' family was that large. So it's just, it's just absurd. Plus, the name Jesus 
was incredibly popular. Yes. The name Mary, you know, the Jesus son of Mary, I mean, every hundredth boy was called Jesus son of Mary. So the chances are just extremely slim. Um, healers in the Time of Jesus at the University of Western Australia, the Woolner Lecture Theatre at six o'clock tonight. Uh, John Dixon, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. I like the fact that uh, you come to us, uh, yes, with the uh, perspective of being the director of the Centre for Public Christianity, uh, but also the fact you're a senior research fellow at the Department of Ancient History. Uh, you blend the two extremely well. It's been a great pleasure having you here. Thank you, Jeff. John Dixon, who uh, we've spoken to before about some of these matters, and I certainly look forward to doing so again.